0: Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. For decades, more and more people have been moving into cities. Right now, the New York, Newark area is the nation's most populous urbanized area, followed by LA, then Chicago. That's according to census figures. But it doesn't stop there. A UN report says by 2030, the number of people living in urban areas worldwide will swell to almost five billion, mostly in Africa and Asia. My guest today has been examining how the law and urban environments converge. Nestor Davidson is a professor of law, as well as founder and director of the Fordham Urban Law Center. Good morning, Nestor. Good morning. So what's the simplest way to describe urban law?
1: The simplest way to describe urban law is the connection between the complex machine that is the city and the legal system. So where do questions? of the authority of local governments come in, how do we plan our land use, how do we think about inclusion, immigration, uh, racial justice, questions of the quality of life in cities. These are all core legal questions. And lawyers are involved, legal academics are involved, and it's a way of thinking about the intersection of law and place through an urban lens.
0: Now, Nestor, can you sort of describe some real-world scenarios of how urban law is or can be used? Certainly. Think
1: about a city like New York. Uh, One of the signature proposals that the Bloomberg administration has been advancing involves public health. And one of the signature elements of the public health agenda is a proposal to limit the size of certain portions of sugary drinks. As you probably know that has ended up in court. And the case revolves around the authority of the city, the authority of the public health department to regulate uh, this kind of activity and this kind of product. When a city like New York is trying to act for the welfare of the people who live in the city, There are many ways in which the city has limits on what they can do and many things that give the city authority and power and latitude to do what the city wants to do. But almost every aspect of what can determine the fate of a city has some legal dimension. And in order to understand the promise and the challenges facing any city in the United States or around the world, You have to at least begin with an understanding of what the legal landscape is for the people who run that city and for the people who live in that city.
0: Now, Nestor, I've read um, some of your research and you have said in the past that urban law as a field of study has been fading over the last few years and hopefully it'll be revived by Fordham's Urban Law Center. But why has it been fading or why was it fading?
1: It's a great question. So if you were interviewing me, In 1970 or 1965 or 1975, I think we would have understood a feel of urban law in a a, a very simple and straightforward way, the law that affects cities. And there were programs and scholars who identified themselves as urban legal scholars, much in the same way that today, if you're an economist, there are very well-recognized sub-disciplines of urban economics. If you're a sociologist, there are people who call themselves urban sociologists. There are urban uh, political scientists. Um, and in each of these disciplines, there have been times of waxing and waning in the prominence of urban economics, urban sociology, urban history, and the like. What's interesting about urban law as a discipline within the legal academy is, fast forward from the late 1960s and early 1970s, where there was really a pretty strong engagement with the discipline as such, to today where I think there are very few people who would identify themselves as urban legal scholars, even though there are many, many people who work in areas that would fit within an umbrella of urban law under any definition, people who think about local governance, people who think about the built environment, people who think about social justice in an urban context. I think that the advantage of reviving a field called urban law is that it will help people who work in areas that really should be talking to each other but perhaps aren't find a common language, find a common vocabulary, both within the legal academy but also so that we – within the legal academy – can reach out and be informed by and help inform our colleagues in economics and sociology and history and all of the other areas where an urban agenda, I think, hasn't faded as much as it has within the legal
0: academy. It sounds like people have already been in the urban law area, but just didn't call it urban law. Exactly. Now, Nestor, if I am at the front door of the Urban Law Center and we're walking together in the Urban Law Center and you're gonna convince me that this is where I need to be. How would you do it?
1: Uh, Welcome to the Urban Law Center, first (laughs) of all. I think that if you're a student, what the Urban Law Center can help you do at Fordham is understand
0: the role
1: that lawyers play in local governance, which is really the layer of law and policy that affects people most immediately in their day-to-day lives tells you where your kids can go to school. It shapes job markets in which most people live. It tells you the safety of the neighborhoods you live in. And I think getting students to understand that is actually very important. And I think the Urban Law Center is already helping students make connections, both in terms of their thinking and in terms of their career prospects, to the ways in which lawyers shape the local context. The Urban Law Center can help you understand where law fits into the areas that you're interested in. So we run programs. Um, This is only our second year, but we're involved in already a number of conferences where we're convening leading scholars on a range of interesting topics. This spring, for example, we're hosting co-hosting a two-day conference about technology, transforming urban governance, and where law fits into that. And so that's a great example of where technologists, local government officials, advocates, can come together and will come together for two days at Fordham Law School and engage in a very sophisticated conversation about what are the regulatory constraints that are holding back technological change, what are the concerns that the legal system needs to pay attention to in terms of information security and privacy and other concerns, and how do we navigate this very brave, very new world that cities are confronting, again, in the United States and around the world.
0: Uh, How many conferences have you had so far? Uh,
1: We began last fall, about a year ago now, with a conference on the legal legacy of the Bloomberg administration. We've been involved since then in uh, at least half a dozen conferences. We have four or five going this year. Um, The programming uh, is very vibrant. We've been able to find great partners uh, both at Fordham and at other universities. Um, And the platform, I think, is already proving itself to be engaging one and one that people are wanting to be a part of.
0: Can you share maybe a list of the topics of the conferences and and maybe what came from them?
1: Certainly. Like I said, we began with the conference on the legal legacy of the Bloomberg administration, which was really one of the first opportunities that people had had to look back over the course of his administration and examine the impact he had had on a number of core legal and urban policy questions. We did a conference last spring that was more academic. Uh, It was on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of the Fordham Urban Law
0: Journal. Now, before we get into that, I have a lot of questions that are specifically about the 40th anniversary, yes. but let's continue with the list and then sure. we'll come back around to the, to the anniversary.
1: Absolutely, so this past fall, we helped co-sponsor a conference about the fiscal crisis facing local governments, particularly around pension liability and healthcare liability for uh, municipal employees. A number of cities, Detroit being the most prominent, but smaller cities all over the country as well, are facing significant legacy challenges. Some creative solutions have been tried, but it's a classic area where fiscal constraints have met legal constraints, and the lawyers are at the forefront of trying to figure out what the right solutions are for this local government fiscal crisis around the country. And we did a great conference on that this fall with the Urban Law Journal. We co-sponsored with the Furex Center here a conference about alternatives to the right to counsel in civil cases. So, as you know, the very famous Gideon v. Wainwright case established a right to counsel for indigent defendants in criminal matters. But the Supreme Court has never recognized an analogous right in the civil side. And this is a... Now, wait.
0: Explain what that means.
1: So if you are a low-income tenant and you're facing eviction, you do not have the right for the government to provide you with a lawyer. And as a result, many, many indigent litigants in the civil system, so not people facing criminal liability, but people facing eviction, people facing child welfare challenges, people facing a whole host of very significant legal challenges, do not have a right to have a lawyer. And so we have a very significant problem of underrepresentation. And there's a movement to try to establish a right to counsel. People are trying to figure out ways of both expanding the lawyer cadre that we have that serve low income litigants, but also trying to find alternatives. How do you change the technology that governs how people experience the legal system? Are there non-legal advocates who, within the constraints of legal ethics, can represent people in limited contexts? Are there things that courts can be doing to ease the experience, the people who are representing themselves, and many people uh, who can't afford a lawyer have to represent themselves? Are there ways that courts can help litigants who are representing themselves uh, navigate the legal system in ways that mitigate some of the downside of not having a lawyer? And our next conference is one on the technological transformation of urban governance and the title is smart law for smart cities and one of the things that's really exciting about the conference is in addition to the fordham urban law journal we're also working with another center here at the law school uh, center on information law and policy and also the center for digital transformation at the business school here at fordham and also fordham's urban studies program so it's a very exciting opportunity to examine a set of core legal questions but also to begin to build an interdisciplinary dialogue across Fordham.
0: And to clarify, urbanism, we're speaking about cities. We're not speaking about low-income areas. or They can, but that's not specifically what we're geared towards. Um,
1: And cities, if you're a lawyer, there's an interesting question of jurisdictional boundaries that I've done some work on. And I think one advantage to thinking about urbanism as an umbrella is that it allows you to understand that today it's not just central cities that determine the fate of a region. It's the whole metropolitan region. It's the cities. It's the inner-ring suburbs. It's the outer-ring suburbs. And we have a kind of urban agglomeration in most parts of the country that go beyond the traditional old-style center cities with some suburbs around it.
0: Can you elaborate more on the um, divvying up of jurisdictions?
1: Sure. One of the interesting legal realities about how local governments are structured is that the boundaries of our local governments and the geography of how people live in and around cities don't always match. So if you live in the New York metro area, you may live in northern New Jersey, you may live in Westchester County, you may live out in Long Island, you may send your kids to school in another jurisdiction. You may work in another jurisdiction. The course of your day-to-day life and the things that determine the quality of your life may cross two or three local governments on any given day. They'll also be affected not only by the local governments in which you live, work, shop, send your kids to school, but also you'll be affected by state-level issues, by federal issues. And so there's a very interesting mosaic of overlapping jurisdictions. And it is often the case that the scale of the challenges we have don't match the scale of the jurisdictions that we've created. So if you want to think about an issue like transportation in New York, the regional transportation network crosses several counties, several states, and involves questions of local, regional, state, and federal jurisdictions that overlap in sometimes very challenging and sometimes very creative ways Um, And for lawyers involved in any area of urban policy, having an understanding of both the landscape of this jurisdictional diversity and how to work within and be creative about that diversity is a very important challenge and a very... Uh, interesting set of problems to work on.
0: I'm Robin Shannon on 90.7 WFUV. This morning on Fordham Conversations, I'm talking with Fordham Law Professor Nestor Davidson, who's the founder and director of the Fordham Urban Law Center. We're discussing the legal questions that arise as cities begin to grow. Now, I promise to circle back around to the 40th anniversary of the Fordham <laughs> Urban Law Journal. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, for the anniversary, you got a group of scholars together, as you said, to reflect on the journal's legacy. Yeah. So what was the journal like when it began, and how has the process sort of changed?
1: The journal was really an attempt at a time of significant transformation and challenges for cities around the country coming out of the urban crisis of the late nineteenth. 19- 60s and into the 1970s, where New York faced significant challenges, but cities all over the country did. And students and some faculty then were very interested in creating a platform where students and legal scholars could explore those challenges. And the idea of the symposium was to survey the primary topics that defined the field in that first year, 1972, 1970 Three, and then reflect on where those topics had gone. So the core topics that Well, we, I don't want to get
0: to, to the core topics yet because I'm going to go through those individually. Okay, great. Because <laughs> I thought they were pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, but I do want to uh, better understand what did you hope overall to accomplish with this?
1: So we hope to accomplish, I think, three things. One, just to recognize and celebrate four decades of... The achievements of the journal. Uh, There are only two journals in the country that focus on urban law. The second was to really track where the fields that had been identified as urban law 40 years ago had developed and where those fields are moving today and into the near future. And then the third and perhaps most ambitious goal of the symposium was really to advance that conversation about the nature of the field of urban law. Where did the field go? Can we revive it? Is there value in reviving it? But it was a chance to bring together some wonderful scholars who could identify themselves as urban legal scholars and to get them to start to think and to get others to start to think about what it would mean to begin to self-identify and to begin to have an approach to a set of disparate topics that, at least in part, fell under an umbrella of urban law.
0: Now let's get into some of the topics. One of the essays was called, I believe, The Rebirth of the Neighborhood, and it sort of looked at the revival of cities across some parts of the country. So tell me more about the essay itself, and how does it relate to urban law?
1: So this is an essay by a wonderful professor at Georgetown, Peter Byrne. What Professor Byrne was focused on is a phenomenon and it very much ties to the decline and I think the potential future rise of urban law as a field that for many years, really beginning in the late 60s and into the 70s and 80s, cities were seen as a location that was problematic. People fled the cities into the suburbs. Those who remained faced a set of very significant challenges And what has happened over the last 20 or 25 years is that people are coming back to the city. Cities are growing again. Cities are again seen as centers of creativity and innovation. And what Professor Byrne was focused on is the fact that a lot of this change, this positive change, has been happening at a very local level, at a neighborhood level. And Professor Byrne does a lot of work in historic preservation And part of his argument was, through this downturn in cities, many cities managed to maintain some connection to their historical past. And that level of old, urban, scaled, walkable neighborhoods with some sense of historic connection have been the engines in many cities, certainly in large parts of New York, for bringing people back into the city um, and sparking that kind of revival of interest in cities so that at a time when... Cities at a very large macro scale are experiencing growth. A lot of that change has happened at the neighborhood level and has spread from the very local to the regional. Nestor, what sparked the growth? I think it's a, an interesting question, and I think a lot of different changes came together. I think larger-scale changes in the national economy created a space in which cities could reinvent themselves. You have to look to the creativity of a lot of local leaders and a lot of neighborhood level change. I think people have always been drawn to cities. I think if you take a much longer perspective, I think people greatly value the diversity and creativity and energy that you can find in cities. And so, in some ways, I think you can think of the urban crisis of the 60s and 70s as more of an anomaly and the rebirth and return of interest in cities as almost a return to historical form.
0: So basically there's a movement to want to be in cities, but not necessarily the way cities have always been? Well, cities
1: have always changed, and cities are both the most enduring form of human settlement in some ways. We have places that have long outlasted whatever countries or empires they were a part of, but cities have always figured out ways to reinvent themselves. Uh, New York's a great example of that. New York began as a trading post. Uh, It became an industrial powerhouse. There was a time when more manufacturing happened in New York than in any other part of the country. And New York then reinvented itself again as a corporate center and is in the process of reinventing itself again as a center for entrepreneurship and intellectual property and technology. And if you had to predict today what would be the driver of the economy of New York in 25 or 50 years, you might get it wrong. And I think if you'd looked back at any period of New York history over the last two or 300 years, you might not have predicted what the next transformation would have been. One thing that has been constant in New York and in many cities is the eagerness and the ability. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it takes time. But, but cities do reinvent themselves.
0: Now, another topic in the 40th anniversary of the Fordham Urban Law Journal was about an essay called Saving Mount Laurel, Mount Mm -hmm. Laurel, New Jersey. So what are some of the important urban law issues around that essay?
1: So this is an essay that was part of a panel on exclusionary zoning and housing in urban planning. And the idea was to look at ways in which law both facilitates Inclusion and unfortunately can be used as a tool to foster segregation and exclusion. And one of the most famous legal cases on this set of issues is a case in New Jersey uh, called Mount Laurel. It involved the township of Mount Laurel. And the New Jersey Supreme Court ultimately decided through a series of cases under the banner of the Mount Laurel Doctrine that local governments exercising their land use powers, had to do so, have to do so, in a way that creates a fair share of housing opportunities within a region. And it's been very controversial. It's been the source of much litigation and legislation in New Jersey, but it's an enduring principle. And this was an essay by Professor Rick Hills at NYU, looking at the promise of this Mount Laurel doctrine, and some of the significant challenges it has faced over the years, both political and legal, and proposing ways in which we could reinvent the Mount Laurel doctrine, really to try to spur market forces to harness the need for a greater mix of low-income, middle-income, and higher-income housing in a lot of communities that tend, through their land use, intentionally or unintentionally, to have land use patterns that are more exclusionary.
0: Is this a way to make sure low-income residents don't get priced it, out?
1: It is one tool that we could use. And I think one of the interesting things about the argument the essay makes is that it makes the case for what is essentially a deregulatory approach to creating the conditions in which low-income residents might be able to move into a broader range of communities. And the idea is that the market should produce more affordable housing than it does. And it's really, in some places at least, an artificial legal constraint on what market forces would produce. And there are very strong arguments that in some places if you could get the law out of the way, the market would produce a much greater range of affordable housing now of course that doesn't work everywhere and there are other tools that are needed but certainly it's an intriguing thought that without a local government necessarily investing another dime by changing the conditions in which the private market can operate they may be able to foster greater diversity and integration.
0: Let's move to the essay called Wither Workforce Housing and its Mm -hmm. Relationship to Urban Law. So tell me about that essay. And I know housing happens to be uh, an area that you're very familiar with.
1: Absolutely. My background is in affordable housing, both at the federal and local level. Workforce housing is a very interesting idea that tries to target a certain segment of the range of people who might be eligible for affordable housing. So you can think of a spectrum from people who are homeless, who may need a certain kind of service-enriched housing as the first step to move towards permanent housing. You can think of a number of programs we have at much higher income scales that, for example, give very generous tax incentives. You're allowed to write off uh, your property taxes and the interest on mortgage uh, debt, and in between the high-end and the homeless who are facing the greatest challenges, there are a whole range of programs that target various levels of low-income potential tenants or residents or owners. Workforce housing says companies need employees, and there are a number of communities around the country where the cost of housing makes that workforce availability very challenging. And so there's a very nice confluence of interests where companies want to support affordable housing. People who want to work need that housing in communities. You don't want to have to commute. And so it's a way of harnessing that confluence of interest to create a set of programs that are supported by industry that can target Uh, particularly a working segment of the spectrum of people who might qualify for affordable housing.
0: Now, Nestor, when all these scholars were together and they were reflecting on the journal's legacy, did anything in particular surprise you or (laughs) just kind of took your breath away?
1: I was pleasantly surprised by the way in which people who work in their own little silos, the excitement that was generated in people talking across their own silos. And it did prove, I think, that there is value in this kind of place-based cross-disciplinary approach that we're trying to foster. So people who think about public health issues, we're talking to people who think about exclusionary zoning, we're talking to people who think about environmental law. And that was very exciting. It was very exciting to see the conversation develop over the course of the day and very exciting to see that this is a kind of approach that actually makes sense and that actually gets people talking in a very creative way uh, and creates insights that you might not get if you're just within your own subdiscipline.
0: I want to circle back. Uh, earlier, we talked about Michael Bloomberg's move to cap the size of sugary drinks sold in yes. New York City. And in your research, you said you were surprised, actually in your writing, you said that you were surprised that the state's court struck down the cap. Why is that?
1: One of the interesting things about the way courts approach local government institutions is that they don't always give as much deference as Federal courts, for example, give to federal administrative agencies, which is not to say that federal courts rubber stamp the work of federal agencies by any means. But there's also a set of doctrines that say, if you're an agency and you have looked at the science and you've reached a reasonable application of that science in fulfilling your obligation to regulate in a given area, we as a court may not agree with it. We may think that there are different ways that you could approach solving these problems. But within a fairly broad range of rationality, courts, at least at the federal level, tend to give expert agencies some latitude to work within their area of expertise. And one of the challenges has been that level of deference to expertise hasn't been as strong as I think it could be.
0: So Nestor, it's 40 years in the future. Where would you like to see the Fordham Law Center be at?
1: So 40 years from now, I think if we have been able to sustain a sustained conversation about the intersection between law and cities, if we've been able to shed light on a set of important, challenging urban policy questions, if we've been able to train lawyers to be involved in the life of cities... I think that would be a phenomenal success.
0: And all the awards you get from doing that, right? (laughs) I'd like to thank today's guest, Nestor Davidson, a professor of law, as well as founder and director of the Fordham Urban Law Center. I'd also like to thank my producer, Alan Kanlick. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay right there. George Bodarki and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Everyone knows the smokestack shines for free. Everyone knows the smokestack for free.